Open your Bible to the very first page. I'll give you four or five minutes to find it. Okay, the very first page, the book of Genesis, chapter number one. I'll read the scripture in a few moments. The subject today is marriage, the foundation of human society. Marriage, the foundation of human society. You know, God intends your marriage to be the greatest source of personal satisfaction in your entire life. Did you know that? It ought to be, it should be, and it can be. Now, if you've been married one year or less, you need to listen to me this morning. I've got experience. I've been through this thing 51 years now. That's pretty good, isn't it? Is that pretty good or not? Okay, come on here. I feel like I'm over at the funeral home in the casket room here. Sure, it's pretty good, isn't it? 51 years. So if you've been married a year or less, I think I might be able to help you. I'm not bragging with that. I just think I've been around the course a few times. But now, you know who I worry about when I preach on marriage? I worry about those of you who've been married like me because you think you know it all. You think there's... I've even found out in the past that if I announce a marriage series, some people say, well, I don't need that. I've been married 38 years. I know all about it. Well, I don't think any of us know all about it. Because a fellow says, I've been married 38 years. I think I'll make it. Well, I'd hate to be married to somebody who just wants to make it. I'd rather be married to somebody who wanted to enjoy it, wouldn't you? Who wanted to say, you know what? This is going to be an adventure as long as I live. I heard about an elderly couple who were sitting by the fireplace, and he said to her, Honey, I love you. I've found you to be tried and true. She says, Hmm? What's that? She couldn't hear a thing. He said, honey, I love you. I have found you to be tried and true. And she looked at him strangely, and then she said, and I'm tired of you too. (laughs) Well, in this broken and fallen world, we don't want to be married to people that we're tired of, do we? We want our marriage to be full of satisfaction, full of joy. There's enough heartache in life. There's enough sadness in life. There's enough pain that we all are going to experience at some time or other. We want somebody who loves us deeply, someone who cares sincerely for us, someone who loves us, who is loyal and faithful. Boy, if you have that, that's worth more than the weight of gold, isn't it? And so let's talk today about our marriages, strengthening our marriages. And let's look at marriage, its importance. It is the foundation of civilized society. But I've talked to you about the personal satisfaction angle. Let me say real quickly, there is so much more to marriage than just personal happiness. 
And if all you are looking for is personal happiness, then you're going to have some deep valleys to walk through because marriage is so much bigger than just about me and myself. Marriage involves so many other people. It involves two people's lives, of course, but it involves, it involves many families, not just the immediate two families. It involves grandparents and uncles and aunts and extended family because if we have families that have any relationships at all, we're concerned about everyone in the family. So marriage is vital to the families. Marriage, by the way, is, should be always connected to the church. I'm so disturbed by the fact that we have not had a wedding in this church in several years because now the whole trend is you have your weddings and you divorce them from the church in many cases. And wedding and marriage, of course, it, it goes even beyond that. In the marriage ceremony, I say to the couples involved, I say to them, as goes the home, so goes the nation. As goes the home, so goes the nation. It is the building block of society. And you see, the problem is we've thrown away God's plan. We've thrown away God's design for marriage. We think we know more about marriage, honestly, than God does. Well, let's look at marriage as the foundation of human society. First of all, I want you to get this point. Whether you've been married one week or whether you've been married for 50 years or even if you're not married, please understand this. Marriage and family is God's plan for mankind. Marriage is not a human invention. Long before there was a government, long before there was the church, long before there was human laws or before there were social customs, long before anything else, marriage began back in the Garden of Eden with the first man and with the first woman. You see, think with me and reason with me and see if you don't think this is true. If marriage were of human origin, then we would have the right to change the design. But if marriage was of divine origin, then it is God who sets up the laws, the principles, the regulations, and the design of the marriage union. Now, my question to you today is, who is influencing your thinking about marriage? Because as I will tell you later, marriage today is in tremendous problem. It's experiencing tremendous problems as a national institution. Marriages are falling apart. The divorce rate is high. And the divorce rate is unfortunately high among Christians. People who say they love the Lord and believe in Christ and they've been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And then marriages fall apart constantly in the churches. Now, not as much, not near as much, though there's some statistics that say that, but they define the church as very, in, in a very loose manner. But marriage is so vital. It is not of human origin. Marriage is of God's design. And so it ought to be God who influences our thinking through the Scripture. I hear today people talk about family values. You know what? That is a meaningless term when you hear that. That and 
$2 will buy you a cup of coffee now. Marriage or family values means nothing. The question is, whose family are you talking about? Because in America, we've got all these experiments with all kinds of exotic family units now. And whose values are you talking about? Whose values are you describing when you say family values? You see, values are not like morals fixed by God's Word. Values, each person has his own personal values. So when we say family values, we really haven't said very much at all. It's sort of a meaningless term. Most, or no, I won't say most, but so many people, too many people today, they get their ideas of marriage from the media, the media, especially sitcoms. I heard Adrian Rogers say that there was a man in his church there in Memphis who got a job in Hollywood working in the television industry. And he said he was in a meeting of producers, and the producers were laughing and talking. The conversation went like this, that the way you get people to laugh is you tear down some tradition or some convention, and the greatest thing to get a laugh is to sarcastically deal or break one of the Ten Commandments. And the man went further and said, if you... You, you could, you've had a good sitcom if you've broken about two or three of the Ten Commandments in each version of it. And the, man, the man told Adrian that for the truth. You see, where do we get our opinions about marriage? And I started thinking about the sitcoms. It began with Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman back 20 years ago. And then it went to Friends. Do you remember that television sitcom? Is that... God's ideal for a family. And then it went from there to will and grace. And then it went from there to glee. And from glee to the modern family. And it goes on and on and on. There's a list of sitcoms that promote LGBT philosophy that long. If you'll just look on Wikipedia, you can look at them themselves. It lists them for you. And that's what we're watching. And we're drawing our conclusions. You know, when we laugh at something, it's interesting, this thing of humor. When we laugh at something, we begin to slowly accept it. It loses its sacredness to us. And when we start laughing at something, then we soften in our position regarding it. It's funny to us. And the other influencers on marriage in our culture today are things like the movies and celebrities. Are you interested in what uh, Kanye and Kim are doing? Does that influence the way? I mean, they publicize all this celebrity gossip about people like them. I watched one night a program called Bridezilla. Boy, that's a that's a winner. And so I remembered the name of it, and I looked it up on the Internet yesterday, the official website for Bridezilla. Now, look it up and fact-check me on this if you're skeptical. But here's what the website itself says about Bridezilla. Every episode, I'm quoting, we meet, in every episode we meet a bride 
who in order to have a perfect wedding is more selfish and controlling in the one in the last episode. End of quote. (laughs) Wouldn't you like to live with her? Wow. More selfish and controlling than in the one in the last. And each time they just ratchet it up a little bit. And you say, oh, that doesn't influence me. Oh, it's influencing our country today. It's influencing the overall climate of what people think about marriage. I tell you, marriage is the cornerstone of our society. Marriage, as goes the home, so goes the nation. There's nothing more important in our nation today than our families. So let's look at the biblical pattern of it. I'm finally ready to get to the text, okay? I don't usually do it like that, but I have today. Now, what you think of the Bible, by the way, will determine your view of marriage, your worldview, your view of the family, of marriage, of parenting, and all those issues. Your view of that will be shaped by what you think of Scripture. Now, my view of Scripture is Scripture is the inerrant Word of God, and therefore, I'm not to question it. I'm just to obey it. I'm to follow the Word of God. But um, what you think of the Bible will determine your view of marriage. Let's go to Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 21, verse, pardon me, Genesis 1, verse 27, 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him. Notice him, singular, but generic, meaning both sexes, male and female, created he them. God created man, and if you will read the next verse, you will see, or pardon me, if you will uh, read uh, verse 7 of chapter 2, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. So he just made us men right out of pure old dirt. It's just that simple. And then in chapter 1 in verse number 31, He saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So he made this man out of the dirt, the dust of the earth. Now, notice what he did. He put him in a garden, and the garden was very good. I could say it like this. It was a perfect heredity, and it was a perfect environment. Boy, Adam and Eve couldn't blame anything on their parents, could they? And Adam and Eve couldn't blame anything on the society around them, they were in a world that God said is very good. It was a perfect environment. Sin had not occurred yet. Chapter 2 and verse 18, look with me there. And the Lord said, it is not good that Adam should be alone. I will make an help meet for him. We'll look at that word in a moment. A help meet in verse 18. In verse 21, God made the woman. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh instead thereof. And so God made the man from the dirt, put him in a perfect environment, said it's not good that he would be alone, and then made for him a wife, a woman from one of his ribs. Now, do we believe that, or do we believe the evolutionary hypothesis, the theory of evolution? I believe this. I believe this is the way that it started. This is how 
the world came about. So God created the woman, not from dust. Notice, he created her from Adam's side. In chapter 2 and verse 24, God performed the first wedding ceremony in the Garden of Eden. It was a garden wedding, wasn't it? And in verse 24, therefore, shall a man leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife. Now, they didn't even have father and mother yet, but he's laying out the foundational principles of a marriage. Leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife and be one flesh. I want you to circle two words in that verse if you haven't. You probably have if you've been coming a while, and it is leave and cleave. Leave and cleave. You see, that's the real that, that's the heart of good marriage teaching and instruction right there, to leave. Leave means to break the emotional ties. And parents, it means when they leave, you let them leave. That you don't dominate that life and mess up that marriage. We've had as many marital problems in our church <clears throat> from parents interfering with the marriage as we have with the people themselves having problems. The Bible says they are to leave. That doesn't mean to leave you physically. They don't have to move to California, but it means that they leave emotionally. They no longer depend upon mom and dad. They depend upon one another. Leave each other. And you, you know, here's the way I think it ought to be. The Bible teaches this with adult children. With my little children, I told them what to do. Go over there, come here, sit down, stand up. I told them what to do and expected them to do it. But when they became adults and they got married, now I don't try to tell them what to do. They're adults. If they want my counsel, they can come to me and say, Dad, what do you think? And I'll be glad to tell them. I'll help them in any way that I can. But no more are they under my command. They are now under my counsel. I want them to love me, to respect me, as I will try to do with them. But I'm not going around telling them what to do. My kids, all adults, all married, all have children. And sometimes they make decisions I personally don't agree with, but I don't say anything to them about it. But if they come and ask me, then, of course, that's, that's a different thing. So my role changed. I want them to leave. So leave. And then the second word is cleave, which means being together. Now, you can't cleave and live apart. I was on an airplane one day flying down to Florida to speak, and I got on the plane in Atlanta, and I was seated in a seat by a businessman from New York City. Nice guy. We sat there and chatted throughout the flight. And I said to him, what do you do? And he said, well, I work on Wall Street. I'm a broker and he said, uh, I said, you're going down to Florida? He said, no, I'm going, yes, I'm going home. And uh, we chatted for a while. And I found out in the conversation, this man said, every Monday morning, very, very early, I get up and catch the plane, and I go to New York City where I work on Wall Street all week long. I make a lot of money. I've, been, I'm, I've done well. And my wife prefers to live in Florida, and she and the children are down there, and she's taking care of them all week. And on Friday afternoon, I get back on the plane, and I fly back home to Florida, and I spend the weekend with my family. Well, obviously, I was not counseling him, 
But that's not the way you build a good marriage. See, it says cleave. Cleave has the idea of being glued together, being nailed together. Cleave has the idea that we must be together physically as well as emotionally. It means a total unity physically, legally, spiritually. It means in every way possible that we are together. If not, we will drift apart. Then let me say one other thing about the biblical pattern of marriage. Over in the book of Malachi and also in the book of Proverbs, and I won't look them up because of time constraints, but there are verses that say that marriage is a covenant. It is a covenant. Now today we are making it a contract because the state is involved in marriage and marriage now becomes a legal contract in the minds of the the state of South Carolina. But marriage in the Bible, God's design for marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant. What is the difference in a covenant and a contract? Big difference. A covenant is a solemn, hear the word there, solemn, binding agreement between a man, a woman, and a third party, God. A contract is between two people. A contract is a legal document. And you know what people do with contracts? They usually end up, you didn't keep your part of the... and. We even bring in lawyers to determine who's right and who kept the contract provisions and who did not. I don't view marriage as a contract. It's not a contract. The Bible calls it a covenant. It's a covenant relationship. A solemn, because God is involved. Binding agreement. I'm bound by my honor which ought to be more than a signature on a contract between a man, a woman, and God. A contract is a legal document. It doesn't involve God. It involves two parties. So the covenant is a, is a more binding agreement than is the contract. Now, having laid all that as a foundation, let me tell you the three purposes the Bible teaches for marriage. Why? Did God give us this thing we call marriage? Number one, for reproduction, for procreation, we call it, to use the big word. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. Go back there and look, and you will see what God said. He said, it says he blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. That's that's everything, isn't it? You go under the water, you go up in the air, and you take everything on the ground, and he gave man dominion over it. And then God said, man, woman, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Underscore that in your Bible. It is God's plan for people to have children. It's God's plan for us to have children. 
Now, listen to me. That makes marriage absolutely unique among all the things on this earth. Hear me well. No other institution has the power to create human beings. So that is absolutely profound. That is absolutely unique in every other relationship that I have upon the earth. Only, hear me, only a man and a woman can make a baby. I can't make a baby by myself. Two men can't make a baby. Two women can't make a baby. Nothing or anybody else can make a baby. It takes a man and a woman. I, I figured y'all knew that, but I just felt it ought to be said. It takes a man and a woman, and that's God's design for making babies and to repopulate the earth. And boy, we've, some of the countries of the world have done a good job doing that. By the way, is a little side note because I feel it must be said Marriage then is intrinsically and inviolably heterosexual because of that one thing that the purpose of marriage is to reproduce, to replenish the earth, then because of that, it has to be between two people of the opposite sex. Those of you who've been softened up by the media and the political correctness of our day You've got to think about that. If the purpose of marriage is procreation, and it is, verse 28, then there's no other kind of marriage except man-woman marriage. In other words, I tell you, same-sex marriage does not exist. There's no such thing. It's a counterfeit. I might as well talk about a square circle as I had same-sex marriage. There ain't no such thing. It can't be because what God said about it right here. It can never reproduce. And the first thing God said, even before he made the woman, is when she comes along, I want this man and woman to produce population for the earth. By the way, we are violating that big time in America. See, again, we think we're smarter than God. We're, 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 we, we think that, that uh, we know more about what ought to be than what God's Word says. And we're violating that in America. Do you know what the birth rate in America is per marriage? It's 1.9 children per family. The demographers, the people who study statistics from history, Do you know what they say? They say, listen to me, this is ominous. This ought to be concerning America. The the leadership of our country ought to be talking about this. We're having 1.9 babies per family. The demographers say a nation cannot survive long time if the birth rate goes under 2.1. We don't have enough younger people who are paying into the Social Security program. 
When Social Security began, it was like 22 working people for every retiree. Now that's moved up 26 or 28. You see what it's gonna ha- what's going to happen with this? We're upside down. We have more old people than we do people to support them in their age. Here's the second thing that happens is there's not enough people to keep the economy healthy because it's the people in their mid-years buying diapers and milk and building houses and raising families that keeps the economy going. And so the economy begins to decline. And there's all these reasons. There's not enough people to defend the country because there's not enough people of military age. I'd be willing to go fight for my country, but really? Would I be a very effective soldier? When they told me to do that three-mile run in the morning with that 80-pound pack on my back, that'd be about all I'd be good for that day. We need young bucks doing that kind of stuff, don't we? And you see where we're going because... In America today and in the West, the nations that are having that problem are Japan, Western Europe, and the United States. And we're not carrying out God's plan of reproducing. Now, I want to be sensitive to the people that can't have babies. I understand that can be very painful, but I've got to teach the Bible, and I want to do it in... I I want to tell you what the Bible teaches and, and I, I don't want to be insensitive, but hear me. If you are able to have children, that's God's plan for the family. Why aren't we doing it? It's not hard to figure out. Our commitment in America is not to God's plan for our family. It's to comfort and convenience and to a materialistic lifestyle. And so we don't have the children anymore. Children are expensive, aren't they? They were expensive when I was coming along, and boy, the price is going up. And children are inconvenient. Just about the time you want to do something, they get sick. How many times were we in the car and one of the kids threw up? And, you know, we turn around. They didn't check with me about it. And so today, our commitment is to a materialistic lifestyle, having things rather than having a joyful family. Reproduction, that's the first purpose of the family. The second one is companionship. Look in chapter 2 and verse 18. It's not good that Adam be alone. And so I will create him a helpmeet. Let me say something to the singles who are listening here this morning. Do you know the book of 1 Corinthians teaches that there is a God-given gift, there is a God-given gift of celibacy. And if you're here today and you are living and you're happy and you're fulfilled and you have joy in your life and you're not married, praise God, you may be one of those people. The apostle Paul said he was one of those people. He could live a joyful life and it could be happy and fulfilled without having a spouse. So 
let me encourage you in that, that God gives the gift to people to be single and at the same time be happy. But for most of us, God built this desire in our very design, our DNA. And the DNA says, I want a spouse. I want a mate. Adam, you know, God created him and and then all the animals were there and God commissioned him. God said, I want you to name all these animals. And Adam began, and as he numbered those animals, and he began to look at those animals and study them, he became aware that he was not like them, and they were not like him, that he couldn't fellowship with an animal. No matter how much you may love your pet, you can't fellowship in the biblical sense with an animal. Adam became aware of that, and God looked down. He said, I'm going to create someone like you. A deer is not like you. A dog is not like you. Uh, Whatever. I'm going to create someone like you, Adam. But she's not going to be exactly like you. She's going to be like you, but different. Praise God for the differences. Praise God for the differences. God said, I'm going to give you unity, but I'm going to give you diversity. You can have both. And God's word is a helpmate. If you'll look that up in the Hebrew language, the word helpmate means a helper who corresponds to. A, a helper who corresponds to. That word doesn't imply that the woman is a helper in the sense that she's inferior. It means that she's different that she's not weaker. She has qualities he doesn't have, and he has qualities she doesn't have. And when you pull all those qualities together, you have a wonderful unit, a one flesh, unified unit that has capabilities that neither of them would have on their own. That's what that means. She's supplied qualities that he lacked. God made us different in order to make us one. And stop and think about that a minute. God made us different in order to make us one. Somebody said the woman is the beauty and the man is the beast. She's the romantic and he's the mechanic. She is the radar. She's surveying the whole field. He's the computer, just the facts. She is the lover and he's the achiever. Let's get her done. See the difference? And it doesn't mean one is better or one is inferior or one is superior. It means we're different, and yet we are both human beings made in the image of God. Now, I have a personal opinion on that. My personal opinion is, it's very strong. I understand how a man can fall in love with a woman. I don't understand how you women can fall in love with a man. Hairy legs, ah. I don't understand how a woman can fall in love with a man, but I sure understand how we men can fall in love with a woman. They're wonderful creatures. The third purpose of marriage, replenish the earth, number one. Number two, companionship, to be with him. And number three, marriage is to manifest God's glory in the world.
Marriage is to manifest God's glory in the world. What do I mean by that? What is God's glory, first of all? Well, you know what God's glory is? You read about in the Bible scores of times. The glory of God is the sum total of all of God's character qualities. The glory of God, the sum total. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. God is loving. God is, is merciful. God is kind. You add all of that up and all those character qualities, that's the glory of God. Now, Norma and I are to manifest this to the world around us. In other words, God says, I've given you nature to understand me, the world to understand me. I've given the world the Bible to understand me. I've given the world the Lord Jesus Christ to understand me. But you know what else I've given? I've given the world marriage and a Christian home so that people can see what I'm like. And when I treat my wife with agape love, the world notices. And when we have a disagreement, but we learn how to practice biblical forgiveness, then we demonstrate to the world how the Lord forgives us for our sins. And when I genuinely care for her with kindness and grace, or she cares for me in the same manner, the world says, look how they're kind. We bite and fuss and stab and get mad and curse. But look how they react when there's a problem in their home. And my home should be the most powerful testimony on my street that Christianity is real. And the qualities that we believe God has, love, joy, peace, his patience for us, his kindness for us, his forgiveness for us, they can look down to my home and they can see that being carried out. That's God's plan. We don't do that perfectly at our house, but that's our ideal. That is our goal, that we would show the glory of God in our community and in our world around us. What kind of marriage do you have? Are you really trying to open your Bible and model your marriage after God's design? Or have you fallen into the thought patterns about marriage that the people at work talk about and laugh and joke about? Do you draw your conclusions about what marriage ought to be by what the government policy is now that's into all these various different things, all this gender identity stuff? Or do we say, no, my model, my pattern for my marriage is the Word of God. You know what I'd like to do in closing this morning? I'd like to suggest you take your wife or husband by the hand. And when we stand in a moment, you walk right down here to the altar, and you all kneel down together and say, God, strengthen our marriage. There are so many enemies of marriage right now, and I'm going to be talking about that in the future. There are so many enemies of marriage right now trying to, Satan is out to destroy your home because people are buying into these false philosophies. And so 
Why don't you just step out today and say, you know what? We're going to pray together at the church altar before we go home today. And we're going to ask God to help us to manifest God's glory to the world. And secondly, before I close, the gospel is, of course, that Christ, that God came to the world as a man. Think about that. God became a man. And then God came to the world, lived on this planet, died on the cross. He lived a sinless life, and he paid the sin debt for each of us by shedding his blood. If you're not saved today, why in the world would you not want to come and receive Jesus? What possible logical reason could you have, sensible reason, that you would walk out these doors and reject the Lord Jesus Christ? Please don't do that. The staff and I will be here available. Come on today and receive Christ as your Savior if you're not saved today. Stand to your feet with me, if you will.